June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hey there, Face the Nation podcast listeners. With less than a week until the November midterms, we wanted to discuss the cyber issues that election officials are facing across the country. Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan talked with Chris Krebs, who used to run the government agency that combats election misinformation and helps safeguard election infrastructure. We hope you enjoy this Face the Nation special. Hello, good afternoon, Twitter. This is Margaret Brennan, moderator of Face the Nation on our latest Twitter space. And today I'm uh, excited. We're joined by a friend of Face the Nation, who is also the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. He's now a partner at the Krebs Stamos Group. And you all remember him as the top U.S. official charged with safeguarding the cybersecurity of the 2020 election. And he joins us today to discuss this year's midterm elections. Chris, good to talk to you. Hey, Margaret. Uh, good afternoon. Glad to be here. Um, we are just days away now. It's it's kind of surprising that it's come up on us this quickly. I feel like we've been talking about the possibility of these elections and the questions around security, and now we're really staring down the date on the calendar. Um, and I know... I know you're sensitive to this. I know everyone uh, in your line of work is, but in my line of work, we really only talk more about risks than successes. We, we don't report on planes landing safely at the airport. We report on problems. So to be fair, um, and just to set a baseline here, can you tell us how secure you judge our elections to be before I get into the problems? <laughs> um, so a, a couple points. I mean, first, you're, you're right. It, it, it does come up pretty quickly on us. I remember 2020 thinking we had all the time in the world to prepare for the 2020 election. And then next thing I knew, um, there we were in, in November. And it feels kind of like the same sort of thing here with the midterms. And, and I, I have a sneaking suspicion that 2024 will will jump right up on us and maybe even races for 24 starting as soon as uh, later <laughs> next uh, week. Agreed. agreed. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but but you know generally speaking and this has been my sense um for quite some time and it was reflected in an alert sent out by the fbi and cisa a few weeks ago um but the the general consensus for election systems and the fact they are managed by state and local governments it's a decentralized approach you know if you've seen one state election system you've seen one state election system i think Director Easterly said that um, on Face the Nation mm-hmm. this past week or, or, or somewhere else. But, you know, given given the distributed nature of election infrastructure and the extensive uh, safeguards in place, and these are just layered defenses. There are security controls, there are resilience measures, and there are things like the increase of paper ballots associated with uh, the voting process that gives you the ability to go count, recount, audit, and audit, so on and so forth. It gives everyone the confidence, gives me the confidence, gave me the confidence in 2020 to say our elections were secure. Uh, but but once again, um, you know, right now, everyone in the U.S. government, I think everyone in the in the cyber threat intelligence space believes that um, that that the election is secure, that attempts to manip- particularly attempts to manipulate the votes, uh, a vote at scale, which means, you know, actually change the outcome of an election would be really difficult to conduct. Um in an undetected manner. And so I personally believe that our elections are in fact secure, as secure as they were in 2020. Um, my greater concern in the run up to 2020 is not so much the technical vulnerabilities of systems, but it's the kind of psychological vulnerability of the voting public and, and even non-voters, of course, mm-hmm. but, but how, um, certain angles and stories and, and mistakes and errors in the process that are not determinative or leading to actual risks to the conduct and outcome of an election are being, in fact, twisted as, a, mm-hmm. as an information operation to lead you to believe and, and ultimately create chaos and undermine confidence in the process. And when you say something like that, you're thinking of what it taking a long time to tally votes in certain certain precincts or, or states. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of one that I've seen uh, recently over the last couple of days. In fact, I've seen today uh, American sitting elected officials amplifying a narrative that this is the first time all of a sudden that um, it takes time, days or weeks to count an election, which, in fact, um, it is it is always taking taking a long time due mm-hmm. to the way some systems are set up. Um, thinking back even to the U.S. Civil War, when um, when mail-in ballots were provided or, or absentee ballots were pro- mail-in ballots, really, were provided to soldiers in, in the Civil War. And, and those did not show up on Election Day necessarily or were tabulated. It takes time to tabulate um, and, then, and then canvas and then audit and then certify the elections. And that's why there is such thing as a safe harbor date of uh december 14th that um that where states have to get their their certified votes in i mean if you think Mm -hmm. back to 2000 in bush v gore uh you know in part due to litigation but but uh that election was not determined uh until until december so this is not a novel thing it's always been that the case now the distinction here is that close elections um are not able to be called on from an unofficial basis by the media necessarily on the night of or the next day or, or whatever. When you have a bigger spread in the results, it is easier um, through projections and and some of the unofficial results. 
um, where the mail-in ballots may not matter from a projection perspective. And I think that's that's the big difference here. Well, and in states like Pennsylvania, you can't even begin tabulating and counting votes until right. election day. That's the law. Correct. And, and that was a big issue in 2020 with the increase in mail-in and absentee ballot opportunities in all of these states. Um, and yet the legislation and the state legislatures did not allow accommodations where you could not even begin counting, but begin the processing of ballots, including preparing, making sure the signatures were authenticated and verified that all the other uh, elements were in place so that you could make it quicker to run the ballots through uh, the tabulation process. Now, Wisconsin did make a slight adjustment, but again, you know, the legislatures in many of these states have made it actually difficult to get the official, uh, at least the first run of the count through, um, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. And there have been Republican sitting Republican senators who know that, who have been tweeting things that are misleading about what may be happening. I imagine we're looking at the same. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I suspect we are. Um, and I look, I, I mean, part of this is this relates to kind of an influence and propaganda piece where there's an incentive structure in place and there's been a shift in those incentive structures over the last several years where it actually benefits um, elected officials and influencers and elites to push some of these narratives because it resonates with uh, their target audience and, and, you know, because they they've been conditioned to believe these sorts of things. And so once you get that alignment and resonant uh, resonance of, of messaging, you create this affinity and, and, you know, increased turnout, um, and the challenge is that there's no real um, there's no real accountability measure other than yep. at the ballot box. And and back to that incentive structure piece, if you know, if the if the audience is expecting it and it resonates and it, it's rewarding, then if, then, of course, there, there's not going to be an accountability. And, and then, you know, it doesn't matter because it cycles through the next new cycle anyway. Everybody's forgot they're moved on and something else. You know, today's outrage hits. Uh, and so we, we forgot what happened yesterday. Well, we didn't forget what happened yesterday at CBS, because I'm about to bust open our list here of those who talked about the 2020 election and continue to talk about uh, two years ago, um, mm-hmm. even as we head into the, the election around the corner. Um, you declared it was the most secure election in history, period. Um When we look at our CBS tally of candidates running for office right now, there are only two states in the entire country, Rhode Island and North Dakota, where an election denier is not on the ballot. Out of nearly 600 Republicans running for office, and we're talking about all all levels of office here, there are 308 candidates who've raised doubts about the integrity or validity of the election. It is not disqualifying, in fact, when we look at our polling for someone judging who to vote for. Um, and, and you're saying it, 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 it's, it's actually a feature, not a bug here. Correct. It's the incentive structures have shifted where it's a reward across the, the target audience, the base. Um, it, it actually is an incentive uh, through the primary process um, at a minimum to uh, not speak up about it. Certainly right. not to say it was a, a safe and secure, fair and free election, that would get you primaried. And that <laughs> you would actually have an active antibody out there in the system 
working to drive you out of the system. So at a minimum, you don't say anything about it. But ideally, in this alternate reality, um, there's a uh, there's an incentive for you to actually go out there and, and to cry. And this is not something that just kind of stopped once you got through the primary. I think what you were going at was you have a candidate for governor in, in Arizona who, in yeah. fact, said it, I believe, yesterday, the, uh, you know, questioning the, the current sitting legitimate president's 81 million votes. And mm-hmm. uh, in fact, it, it was 81 point something. So, you know. Technically, she may have been correct, but uh, I think she was alluding that the the the, her, the true vote was the other direction, down, not up. Right. And, so and, when we, and one one quick point, sorry, yeah, yeah. is, and I think I mentioned this um, on uh, it was on sixty minutes last week, uh, but you know when we talk about safe, how safe and secure the twenty twenty election was, that was a consensus view. So it was not you know Chris Krebs, director of CISA saying it, that was a consensus view of election officials at the uh, uh, state and local level. That was federal officials in the intelligence community and law enforcement community. That was uh, the private sector. That was the the body of election administration saying based on the view of at November 12th, 2020, that it was a, a safe and secure election. Moreover, um, it was the most uh, it was the most scrutinized election. Certainly, you know, I, I can't imagine there being any more attention at any prior election on the actual administration, the safety and security election. Mm-hmm. It was the most lit- it was the most litigated. So prior to the election, there was you know eight or so uh, major lawsuits that I think of those maybe was the majority yeah. of them actually were were in favor of of Republican uh, litigants. And then after the election, there were 60 plus uh, lawsuits. So it was, again, most scrutinized, most litigated. It was also the most audited. So by 2020, there were 43 states plus the District of Columbia that had some sort of post-election audit in place. So so this these, these are not just, you know, thumb in the air type assessments. These were based on practitioners. This is based on statistics. This is based on uh, what actually happened on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, actual facts. So what is your concern after this election is over? Do you um, anticipate, uh, I mean, it's hard to anticipate exactly what we went through would be replicated again, but does this become a feature of our political system where the losing candidate just says, I don't believe it? Um. I, I think that's probably going to be built into the political process yeah. of democracies uh, worldwide. So not just here. I mean, even, um, you know, now in Israel, we have Netanyahu, you know, potentially coming back in as prime minister, apparently. Yeah. Um, but even after his recent uh, his last loss, he alluded to some sort of, you know, fraud or shenanigans in the process. The expectation was Bolsonaro in Brazil would uh, do the same thing. Now, he mm-hmm. has been relatively silent um, in, in alluding to a, a transfer of power. Uh, but his supporters are out there um, w- you know, engaging in civil unrest. And, and it's still kind of an open question of what happens in, in Brazil. But, but you're already seeing it here in the U.S. that, that there is doubt cast upon um, the outcome of elections, unless you win, of course. If you win, right. it's perfectly fine. Um, and there, there are candidates that, that have already suggested, and using kind of sneaky, cloaked language about future results. Uh, the Secretary of State in 
uh, Arizona candidate for the GOP, Mark Fincham, um, when asked about if, if President Biden ran in 24 and President Biden won, would he certify? Mm-hmm. And he just uh, dismissed it out of hand as fantasy, fantasy land. Um, and, and, and so, the, you know, again, they're conditioning the system for uh, an easier rejection of free and fair elections and putting a separate alternate process in place. And there are other aspects of the system itself that could uh, undermine, I think, what we traditionally have viewed as our democratic elections. That includes a case that's in front of uh, the Supreme Court this year, uh, this term rather, about um, what's known as the independent state legislature theory, which would give state legislatures the ability to actually decide how elections are decided and potentially uh, provide alternate slate of electors, which was one of the kind of strategies post uh, November 8th last year. Or You're talking more versus Harper. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. Um, yes, we, we, we're going to talk about that with our Jan Crawford, our Supreme Court reporter, um, because of what you're saying, because you're already hearing noise being made about the potential of that and, and undermining future elections. But um, on this, okay, big picture, because you think about these yep. things. Um, are we at the point now where a lot of this false info is spread on, It's on, it, a lot of it's on social media, some of it's on cable, certainly, um, and on the news. But is social media now a form of our nation's critical infrastructure? Is that how we should think of it? Oh, that is, uh, that's a great question. And one that I think about, as you mentioned, kind of uh, quite often more broadly, like, what is the infrastructure of the future? What's the next generation infrastructure? We tend to think about water systems and banks and telecommunications and and I tend to think about how technology has changed, evolved, and we've adapted to it around us. And starting with things like cloud systems and, and cloud computing, is that a new form of infrastructure separate from information technology and, um, and, and telecommunications? And, it, you know, the way that we communicate now and the way we share information, and uh, I think we, we talked about it on Face the Nation two weeks ago about how so many uh, so many Americans get their news directly from social media, like TikTok. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and how should we be thinking about that? So, so critical infrastructure is a pending question, but it's certainly a uh, established dominant form of communication and, and community engagement, even if it's a, a digital virtual engagement uh, that's that's established in society. And so, we need to be thinking more broadly about, um, you know, certainly the benefits it provides us, but also what are the potential harms? We always think about the benefits and harms of communication means, uh, and, and it's no different here with, with social media. And in the, the kind of the pivot I make right now usually is we, you know, we engage as community on social media. All of our adversaries are viewing these changes and these yes. dependencies and they see the platforms in the last week alone. There have been reports from uh, Twitter, Facebook, compiled up by the Election Integrity Partnership out of Stanford and University of Washington about uh, China and Iranian information operations Mm -hmm. targeting uh, the midterm elections uh, in part. And and in fact, one of the um, one of the campaigns out of China was uh, was actually an anti Marco Rubio. So it's not just about targeting (laughs) Democrats. It's also about targeting uh, Republicans. Now, to the Democrat uh, candidate point. Uh, 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 the company Graphica, which is a social media monitoring 
um, tool company uh, released a report about a Russian effort recent that's kind of a revival of some of the efforts we saw in 2016 with the Internet Research Agency. Uh, they, were, they were targeting uh, Democratic campaigns, undermining uh, candidates in Pennsylvania and Ohio and, you know, basically the big Senate campaigns mm-hmm. that you think about. So so we're seeing, you know, between Russia, China and Iran, they're they're you know, they have their strategic objectives, their favorites. Sometimes that strategic strategic objective is just chaos. But but they 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 pick sides historically and, and they're they're leveraging their tools. Now, the 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 one thing I think to make a um uh, you know, to, to emphasize is these, these tend to be very uh, low level engagement. They're not particularly successful. They're still pretty clumsy and goofy. Um, and I think the broader qualitative measurement of how impactful social media information operations by adversaries are is, mm-hmm. is, is a bit up for debate, but they, they use them. They, they seem to think they work because they keep using them. Yeah, there was um, a group called Zignal. I think I'm saying that right. Zignal with a Z research mm-hmm. right. that said yep. over the past month, there were uh, more than 360,000 mentions of voter fraud on Twitter, up 25% from 2018. Um, is is chatter an indicator of something? Or is that, you know, when you hear and see something like that, does that smell to you of a foreign operation does it smell to you just of you know the way people are talking or at what point does that trigger a concern for people in the government who are saying there's something out there an entity that's really trying to persuade voters uh, about the integrity of the election um i like how do you begin to weed out (laughs) yeah i so so there are a couple different mechanisms but for one i tend to think that there's an environmental level of disinformation and activity sponsored by foreign adversaries that is just out there all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you, it, it is just permeated the, the ecosystem and they tend to, they tend to, you know, really have a, a at least a, a baseline level of um, the zeitgeist. And right now in, a, in American politics, fraud uh, ballot trafficking mules, that's all part of the, particularly the, the right wing zeitgeist that we've seen manifest over the, the last couple years. Now, what the what the foreign or the U.S. government can do, particularly through the intelligence community and some of our our own cyber capabilities is actually penetrate some of these adversaries and get a, a kind of an in-house look at what they're doing in that developed understanding um, can actually be a benefit to the social media platforms as they do their own notification or their own investigations and disruptions. And, and I suspect you're, go ahead. Sorry. Nope. Nope. Go ahead. Are, are you thinking there of what happened in 2018 with those midterm races and what the U S government did to proactively try to shut down the internet research agency, for example, out of, out of Russia, which was spreading disinformation. Right. That's certainly an element. And, and of course, we work with our international partners who have, uh, you know, their own insights into what's going on, just like we we can develop insights and we would share with them during their elections. So, it, it, so there is emerging this this um, alliance of democracies when it comes to disinformation targeting our, our respective elections. So 
are we thinking about it wrong then when we put the emphasis in our public conversation on who owns social media companies? Like, does it fall into the realm of just it's a defense strategy to take out these propaganda networks um, on the outside? Or should we be talking as much as we are about, for example, who owns Twitter, Elon Musk, and the fact that the second largest investor, I believe, in the company now is um, Prince Alwaleed bin Talal of Saudi Arabia, or talking yep. about the fact that TikTok is owned by a Chinese firm called ByteDance. Like, how do um, we start or, talking no, about that's, this? No, that's, that's absolutely a huge element of this. And so what we have to think about more broadly is what are the layer defenses or the various tools in the toolkit, so to speak, that we have to disrupt disinformation operations broadly because they're not just using social media platforms they're able to get media uh, or, or their own elements into traditional media they're able to get it into network mm -hmm. and cable news they're able to use online journals and alternative sources they use pink slime media networks and they're you know kind of unholy alliances between political parties sometimes um, or at least fringe part fringe elements of the party and some of these some of these actors and so what we have to think about more broadly is how to educate how to build awareness and engagement and precondition people more to understand you know what i actually know how elections work and when i hear that story i just read or when i hear someone saying for instance that we used to know when elections were decided i know that's not true because I remember in 2000, it took till December. I know that in my state where we have 80%, um, you know, 80% of mail-in mm -hmm. ballots, that it takes a week. And so I right. think it's incumbent upon uh, election officials and administrators, and we need to support them. The U.S. Congress needs to provide additional funding and resources. They have, mm -hmm. to, they have to be out there with transparency on the process and the expectations. And Stephen Richer, the Maricopa County, Arizona, uh, recorder is a is a tremendous example of excellence in in election administrator transparency. So uh, you know, particularly anybody in Maricopa County, you know, Stephen uh, is is a is a great example and a leader. And and you know, the overall tip to everyone is if mm -hmm. you if you're looking for information on elections, if you have questions and you read something on social media, if you read something elsewhere, go to your local election official, or your state election official. They are going to have the best information available to you. Now, to your to your other question about do we need to take a harder look at who owns these platforms? Absolutely. And, and I suspect what you'll see here in the U.S. is a uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. review of mm -hmm. the Twitter acquisition because you mentioned that second position by Saudi Arabia. There could be, there are others in that queue uh, from, from the Gulf states. That, that could lead to an, some sort of national security agreement restricting certain information availability. Um, but I'd also look at, you know, hey, uh, uh, the, the U.S. has a, a significant number of dependencies from a defense industrial base and other uh, perspective on Elon Musk properties, including yes. SpaceX and Starlink. <laughs> and it, it kind of goes on. So um, I would, you know, I would not be surprised if there are some in the intelligence community that are concerned about the potential leverage the Chinese government has over uh, Elon Musk, but just purely because of manufacturing of yes. some uh, Tesla uh, uh, parts, components, vehicles. Right, because because the supply chain for electric vehicle 
batteries is dependent on rare earths and things that are primarily controlled by the government of China and other countries. Um, yeah. That's, um, it's amazing how everything connects, isn't it? Um, on on the question of foreign ownership, I saw that Axios story about CFIUS. That's a committee you just you you just mentioned, mm-hmm. saying that they would the head of it would favor a ban on TikTok. But it's ultimately going to be up to Congress. And I wonder if that becomes possible after these midterm races, and if we do see, as CBS is estimating, a Republican majority in the House, possibly in the Senate, is this where? There should be public pressure and demand on lawmakers to take a good hard look at who owns social media. Um, so on, on TikTok, I, I suspect there are other means using executive powers that that tick, that that could be used against TikTok. But but ultimately, I I I don't anticipate a flat out ban or you know saying that it's outlawed here. I suspect again you'd have some sort of national security agreement review process that that limits the access to information or the ability to shape algorithms. Um, But I I think it's increasingly becoming apparent that media investments and social media investments, uh, uh, foreign government interference and influence is Mm -hmm. a true national security concern and threat. And, you know, the, the good news, if if there, you know, if there is one area of bipartisanship um, particularly in in the technology space that I see right now, it is uh, it is on the influence of China. It's you know yes. you mentioned supply chains. You mentioned rare earths supply chains dependent upon China. Almost all supply chains have some sort of yes. Chinese dependency. It's almost like there's a reason that there's global inflation, not just U.S. <laughs> inflation. It's because of the aftershocks of and the continued, frankly, zero COVID policy of China that is creating complications throughout the supply chain. So, so I think a lot of what's happening right now is, is a hard look at how do you de-risk supply chain dependencies on China and how do you kind of nearshore or alternate uh, sources mm-hmm. of, of, of product. Um, we had your uh, successor as the head of, of CISA, John Easterly, on Face the Nation last Sunday. Um, and she said there is not at this point any credible threat to election infrastructure but she also says an incredibly dynamic threat environment. Um, when she says something like that, uh, what do you think she's thinking of? Well, I, you know, just to contextualize the, the, the dynamic nature of the threat environment is, is that particularly in cyber things can kind of, you know, turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there is a, there, there are a few things that, that I'm looking at. Maybe this will give a, a little bit of a sense. You know, so, so in the pre-election, then the day of, and then post-election, I'll be looking at things um, like cyber attacks, and, and they can come, um, you know, without warning, and they may jump up on you before before you really, uh, before you know, without you seeing them coming. The second is disinformation campaigns. We've already talked about the yeah. Russia, the China, the uh, the um, the Iranian. There, there are these threats and intimidation to workers, election workers and, and voters. We've seen what's happened in Maricopa County with the election network USA. And there, there's actually an injunction against uh, some of these folks that showed up to monitor ballot drop boxes and tactical gear. We talked about that two weeks ago. 
Um, yes. There's always there's always um, uh, mistakes and errors in the process. Just here in Virginia, Fairfax County, mm-hmm. there were some mailers sent out from a contractor that were inaccurate that had the wrong poll uh, voting locations, and so those have been caught and corrected. Uh, but those always happen, and th- those sorts of claims are being used to um, being amplified to continue seeding doubt and undermine confidence. So people mm-hmm. can been conditioned that elections are fraudulent. Oh, look, here's more, here's more proof uh, by this insidious uh, un- underground effort to overturn our elections. When, when it's just election mistakes that happened before the election, it was caught, it's been corrected or is being in the process, and there will be an investigation to ensure it doesn't happen again. There are also uh, external disruptions that happen during elections all the time. I mean, a great example is Hurricane Ian. So Southwest Florida, a number of counties that have been devastated, uh, uh, Governor DeSantis has, has authorized alternative voting practices. That's that's historically, uh, 2018, Hurricane Michael happened on the panhandle, Mexico Beach, City Beach, or Mexico Beach, Florida. Um, you know, there are ways to, to change how you vote uh, due to, due to uh, due to natural disasters. But on election day, there's what, what we call in the kind of the cyber and elections administration community, advanced persistent backhoes. And what that means is, is that a construction crew somewhere in the country on election day will rip up and cut a fiber line or a power line that will shut off power to an election precinct. And election administrators are used to this. They Mm -hmm. have uh, alternate mechanisms in place. They have provisional ballots if there's some sort of power uh, dependency. So again, election administrators are natural risk managers. They have to deal with all sorts of things from hurricanes to earthquakes to tornadoes. And yes, now in their in their bag of tricks is also, you know, defending against cyber attacks. So you're saying if you see a power outage, don't panic. Right. And that's I mean, don't panic is the is the best course uh, or best course of action in virtually every scenario. (laughs) Right. I mean, so, so this is where just I think. If we had, if we took a little bit more time to process what's being served up to us and presented us, and if something really resonates with you or, or causes fear or some other sort of really strong emotional reaction, it's it's not a bad thing to just pause for a moment and say, wait a second, why am I reacting to this so strongly? Maybe I, I should, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't, uh, you know, listen to uh, this random string of numbers account on Twitter. And instead, let me go check with my election official. Let me go. Let me go check their website and see what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's like, hey, you know what? Things are still going, or you you can switch. But again, your best course of action um, is just to slow it down. Everybody have a little bit of patience, and we will get uh, and, and and get information from an election official. And what are your biggest concerns after? November the 8th, as these ballots are still being counted in some places, like, do you encourage your former colleagues um, at, at your former agency to come out with a declarative statement like you did in 2020 that says this was absolutely secure stamp of approval? It depends on what the kind of the, the level of chatter is and mm-hmm. um, the, the broader information environment. I, my sense at the time and in 2020 was due to the, the a low quality of information was out there. Cause you have to keep like, I've talked about this before, go back to the two weeks after the 2020 election. So right now all the 2020 elections, stolen election, rigged election stuff, 
tends to be about domestic voter fraud. But back in the days immediately following the 2020 election, it was about CIA supercomputers. It was about thermostats. It was about algorithms. It was all this technical mumbo jumbo that 60 plus um, election official or, or election security experts and cybersecurity mm-hmm. uh, officials said it was incoherent. And so it was it was our view. Uh, it was the community's view that providing some sort of stabilizing guidance um, was was useful at, at the time. So, it again, it depends on what happens after the election. I suspect, though that that elect state election officials will 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 speak for themselves and talk about what they're seeing talk about the process um but there will be again that ambient environmental level of of disinformation around fraud and i would particularly um uh anticipate more uh more claims particularly in tight elections and i think most of these kind of battleground state senate elections are going to be pretty tight and obviously there's yeah. a lot on the line there um uh, and that's where i think you'll see a lot of claims around it's taking too long it's because they need to figure out how many bo- votes they need to inject into the system or you know figure out the mule count and all that so um, um false info yeah, it's. I think it's going to be a lot of amplification and conjecture and right. and just flat out nonsense that's uh, that's meant to undermine process book and, and kind of explain away wins or losses. Yeah. Well, Chris, um, we're going to talk again on Sunday. So thank you very much for joining me for this Twitter chat, Twitter Spaces. We're going to have you on Face the Nation. On Sunday, 10.30 a.m. Eastern, and uh, Chris Krabs will join us for more insight in election security and disinformation and what to look for and how to protect yourself. Until next time, thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.